Our teaching texts this morning are out of Philippians and 2 Corinthians, so I'm going to read both of those. Um, so I'll give you a second just to turn to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That's where we're going to start. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And now 2 Corinthians, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you guys uh, make some noise for Bree? She just crushed it. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, my name is David Wade, as Jacob said. First of all, you guys cheered for me way harder than first service, so I already feel better, you know what I mean? Like, this is gonna be bonus content in this service, you know? Uh, just for you guys. Uh, I am one of the embedded church planners here. My wife, Candace, and I moved to San Diego about a year ago, and we are planning uh, to plant a church in San Diego, very likely in City Heights within the next few years with our family. And so anybody wants to come to City Heights, we'll have more information about that in 2024. Um, okay, we are in the middle of a series called Receive the Holy Spirit. And today we're talking about the spirit and freedom. Uh, the spirit and freedom, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And before we jump into that, I kind of wanted to set it up with a little story. So. Uh, names in the Bible matter, right? They often signify something about the destiny or the identity of the person who bears the name. And so with our kids, I take this very seriously. Like I want my son Henry to be like this amazing, awesome dude. So it's Henry David, right? Two powerful, royal, kingly names. And, and I was gonna keep this royal theme going on. I realized I like it, but then if we would have had a second son, as I was praying for the purpose and the prophetic call for our second child, I started thinking of the name Moses. I knew that our second child would have uh, something in their nature about releasing the captives and setting slaves free. I just couldn't shake this image in prayer. And so we we're gonna name, name him Moses, but we had a daughter. And that calling didn't change, but we had to find a different name, right? So there should be a picture up here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so our daughter is Maeve Jubilee. That's a little girl up there on that lion. And uh, Maeve Jubilee 
In Irish folklore, Maeve is this warrior queen, like this epic warrior figure in their national, uh, their version of like the Odyssey or the Iliad, right? So she's like this warrior queen in their legends. And so I wanted her to have something cute and girly, but also like powerful and mighty, you know? Like I wanted her to, to do that. Uh, and so that's her name, keeping that royal theme. But there's also this word jubilee. And some of you guys might know that this word jubilee has great biblical significance because it represents the time in uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish history where all of the slaves who were uh, captured were supposed to be set free. Every 49 years, it was worked into God's law that the captives would be set free, that those who owed debts would be forgiven, that the land would even rest and lie dormant in, in order to be restored. And so our daughter is this little warrior queen who will set captives free and restore hope to those who have been in bondage. And in this way, she is not unlike the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus gave his mission statement at the beginning of his ministry, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To do what? Set the captives free, right? To, to heal the sick, right? Open blind eyes and deaf ears, to free the oppressed, to proclaim good news to the poor, but embedded in that, and what Jesus said his mission on earth is to do, is to set the captives free. Because this is what happens in the kingdom. Those trapped by sin, Satan, selfishness, even the oppressive systems of this world become set free to become sons and daughters of God who do what Jesus did as we represent him to this world. And he breathed that same spirit that anointed him onto his earliest disciples and he breathes that same spirit onto us who follow him still and that we participate now in helping him set others free. We participate, we join in the great mission of God. And so then one of the major roles of the Holy Spirit becomes reminding us of our new identity of sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? Like this is what happened when God released uh, the people, the Jews and the Hebrews from, uh, Mo, from Pharaoh, excuse me, in Egypt. He set them free to roam. And now he said, look, you're, you were slaves, but you're no longer slaves. You're now my children, my special people, and you are free. The Holy Spirit literally spends the course of our lives convincing us that we are beloved children of God and therefore royalty. We have a generous father who is near to us, who desires to bless us and empowers us to bless others. And Brie Golden is gonna share more on identity next week and how that defines us, what that looks like. But it's important for us to ground our conversation of spirit and freedom here too, because our vision of royalty and kingdom and identity is often skewed by the images we have been given throughout history. Um, so can I tell you guys something very personal about me that some people already know in this room? Uh, I'm a very big Alexander Hamilton fan. <laughs> uh, do we have any Hamill stands in the building? Yes, see, there you go. That's why you're an elder at this church. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, okay, that's like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda, like my favorite story of all time. And uh, I really, really, really love Hamilton. There was a season of my life where I, uh, I didn't hear about it at all. Like I didn't say, oh, what's the hype, what's the hype? And then I watched it and I probably spent three months watching it every Friday. Like Sabbath night, me and Alex, you know? Uh, so that's what I would do. Uh, can we put this picture up uh, on the board? You guys know this guy, right? King George. I feel like most of us, when we think of king or we think of royalty, we get the image of an entitled, spoiled, pompous, arrogant, disconnected monarch, like the character of King George in Hamilton. 
And if we don't get that, we get the image of a domineering tyrant who just crushes and crushes and takes and takes and consumes others, sort of like the biblical image of Babylon in the book of Revelation or the historical empire of Rome. Yet there's a third image of royalty that completely obliterates the other two, and that's the image of Jesus. Jesus is a king unlike any king we've ever seen. He has a kingdom unlike any kingdom we've ever experienced. And the good news is, you know, what we read in 2 Corinthians, we're actually being transformed into that very image that we behold in his face. And we're being transformed into the image of Jesus by the Spirit. So the big idea for today is simply this. Through the Spirit, we become free in Jesus' new kingdom so that we can serve God and others. Through the Spirit, we become free in Jesus' new kingdom so that we can serve God and others. This sort of paradox or this irony that we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking. Right? This is what Paul is arguing in Philippians 2 that we read. Uh, this is what he's arguing to this church. But, but how does he justify it? What does he give as a basis for his argument? Well, he, he roots it in Jesus' own actions himself. So let's look back at Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. And just for context, this is a part of a letter that Paul was writing to an early church at a place called Philippi. Many scholars believe that this part of the letter was actually an ancient liturgy or a hymn. So something that they said in the beginning of their gatherings, like our giving liturgy, or maybe even a song that they sang to one another to remind themselves of the truth of the gospel. And Paul is reminding this group, he's bringing this back up in his letter to remind them that Jesus is the one who we are to imitate and become like as we give ourselves to the Spirit's transformative work in our lives. So here's how it goes. In your relationships with one another, right? In the way that you interact with one another, in communal life together, when I'm uh, engaging my brother or my sister, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Right, this is how Evan opened our, uh, our series on the Holy Spirit. He said, we have been given the very mindset of Christ through the Spirit. Uh, we had an old way of thinking. We had old patterns of thinking and believing, but the Spirit now inhabits our mind and, and helps us think like Jesus thought kind of mysterious, profound, divine thing. But then he goes on to define it. He said it's not abstract. And so he defines what that mindset of Christ Jesus looks like. Who? Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or a slave is what that word means being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now I want us to notice this language, right? Servant, humbling, obedience, death, nothing. This is Christ we're talking about here. Christ was equal with God, 100% free from obligation to anyone or anything. This is the maker of heaven and earth, the king of kings, the Bible calls him. He's not subject to any authority, and there's no laws that he has to follow except any to which he would subject himself. Even becoming a human, right? The great majesty, this is, like, this is the earth and the heavens and all of reality, and then here's God, like, outside. You know what I mean? Like, this, this being who we can't even fathom puts himself in this body of a man named Jesus, and even in that body, he is completely free. He doesn't have to subject himself, do anything that he doesn't want to do, and yet, he laid all of that down. He made himself nothing to become a slave. 
Why? Jesus became nothing so that we would be freed from slavery to sin and death and invited into the eternal life that only he can offer. I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? He became obedient to death so that we might live with him forever. I mean, Jesus' name, Yeshua, literally means to deliver or rescue. That's what Jesus' name means. The destiny embedded in his identity is to set us free. Amen. Also, thank you, Tanika. That's a good reminder. Um, I view preaching as a participatory thing. All right, so I need, like, you don't have to participate. Like, you're participating, but if you want to say yes, if you want to say amen, if my dad used to say, that'll preach, don't do that. That might be awkward. But, like, any way that you guys want to follow along with me, that'll give me the energy that I know that you're receiving. Even just a smile and a nod, it really does wonders when you're up here. Uh, so, Tanika, thanks for that friendly reminder. The destiny embedded identity to set us free. Here's, in other words, here's how we put it. In Jesus... God used his freedom to serve others, to serve us. And in so doing, he rewrote what it means to have power, to be royal, and to be free. And so we need to, we need to ask ourselves, then, what was the result of that? Well, part of it, like I said, is being with him forever. Jesus' other name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. He came down. Uh, he crossed the great chasm that separated us so that we could be with him and he could be with us. And it was delight, his delight and joy to do it. Uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't even flinch to do it because he loved us that much. But he also set a pattern or a model or an example for us to follow in how we live our lives. Let's finish out this verse in Philippians. Therefore, Jesus did all that stuff Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't know how that hits you today in 21st century, but this is insane to be heard in the first century context of Jesus' time. Because in the culture of Jesus' day, Caesar was the king of kings and the lord of lords. He had this huge empire which forced everyone around him to become under his lordship. He forced his lordship upon the peoples of his empire, subjecting them to servitude by brute force saying, bend the knee or die, right? Uh, do what I say to do, worship me, or cease. And Jesus, he says, no, that's not how it works. See, I'll die serving you so that you can be truly free. Because my kingdom is not of this world. And then Paul points forward to the response of the nations and tribes and creatures of heaven and earth. Even those who deny him will one day fall in confession and surrender as they recognize that the only one who is ever worthy is this man, Jesus, who gave it all so that we could be healed, restored, made whole, who served us so that we might be set free. It's pretty ironic, yet this is the true image of royalty, of monarchy, and power. See, true freedom is not freedom from all authority and obligation. The truly free person obligates themselves to the needs of others, all those within their power to serve. That is the person God exalts because that is the person who is most like God, yeah. right? That's what Jesus looks like. Yeah. And this was countercultural then, but it's just as countercultural now to our definitions of freedom and power here in the U.S., 
I mean, part of the American dream, right, is that each citizen gets to be the own little king of his own little empire. Like, within the walls of my house, within, like, don't come in my yard. You know what I mean? Castle doctrine. I can do what I want with what is mine. My obligations to others are extremely limited if they exist at all. And while this definition was originally limited to a small group of landowning white men at our nation's inception, our increase in inclusivity, whether to women or African Americans, immigrants or LGBTQI communities, often replicates this notion of individualism. Right? That's because you can only reproduce what you are. America has been really good at broadening who is included in the Constitution. That's something that is worthy of celebration. But there's something flawed about our notion of freedom and individualism that goes out to everybody who is now included, right? Uh, my body, my choice, you know? That's literally like the American idea of freedom boiled down to this most distilled form. Distillated is not a word, Jordan, but I was going to say it. But the word is distilled. Okay. Uh, and one of my classmates pointed out, he put it like this. You know, he, he was talking about the French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. After visiting America in the 1830s, he famously observed and wrote about the dark side of the American inclination toward individualism. This is the 1830s. He says, they owe nothing to any man, the American. They expect nothing from any man. They acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone and they are apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. American democracy throws him back forever upon himself alone and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. Hey, this is the natural, logical conclusion of the definitions of freedom and individuality that we have been handed here in our culture. This is the end of that kind of thinking. And if it was true back in the 1830s, it's even only gotten truer today. And so we Christians here in the 21st century San Diego, we, we find ourselves with kind of two choices or options when we're thinking about freedom and authority. See, there's the cultural lie that says, in the pursuit of self-sufficiency and freedom, I must separate myself from others unless absolutely necessary so that I can do whatever I want, right? I don't need to be dependent on anybody else. I don't want anybody dependent on me. Like maybe my kids and my spouse, you know, but a lot of time, not even that. Like you get 18, you go do your own thing, make your way in the world, don't come back uh, so that I can be free to do whatever I want. That's, that's just true. That's a part of our culture across political spectrums, whatever. But then we have the kingdom truth that says I am set free to serve and be served through interdependence on God and community because love obligates me, it obliges me, it requires of me that I serve the other. Yeah. That's what Jesus did. If we're gonna root our definitions of freedom and love and authority in what Jesus modeled, then this is the option that we have to choose. And guys, in my best Evan voice, like these beliefs are at war with one another. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that was a good Evan, right? That was a good Evan, okay. Uh, they're not recording the service, so I tend to just talk uh, crazy. Uh, See, when we, hear, when we hear where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, we likely hear, I have freedom to do what I want with my body and property. Yeah. And that's, that's typically what we think. That's what the founding fathers heard in the 1700s, yeah. uh, right? Don't tax me. I don't want to be taxed without representation. I'm going to go make my own way. Get your hands off my stuff. That's what the slavers heard in the 1800s, 
right? You guys do what you want up there, but down here, we're going to do our thing. Uh, we're going to run it the way we want my property, my body, my choice, right? This is what freedom looks like here. That's what many of us heard uh, in the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Many men and women for the first time confronted with a, an unprecedented level of freedom to do what they want with their bodies and to love and have sex and whatever with whoever they want to do it, whenever they want to do it, because that is their American right and dream. But there's only one problem. That's not the image of Jesus. See, beloved, you were not your own. You were bought with a price. Peter puts it like this. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, we are God's special possession. We literally belong to someone. And I recognize that just hearing that is triggering for some people to acknowledge for many reasons, many of them valid, but this is a huge thread throughout the scriptures. This is the story of Israel and the church from Adam to Abraham all the way down to us. See, God created humanity for relationship, but we chose the false freedom offered us by the serpent instead of obeying the one thing God told us to do. And so fast forward, God calls this man named Abraham away from his father's gods and the false freedoms offered by idols who are not gods and says, I will make you my special possession. And I'm going to grow you into a great nation, a family that will draw all humans back into that special belonging relationship to me. Why? Because God knows that if we don't belong to him, we will inevitably belong to someone or something else. Amen? Right? That's why Jesus said he took the keys from the enemy and gave them back to the church. There was somebody who had authority over us that we could not control, even when we think we're moving in freedom. Even when we think we're just a good person and we're doing our thing and we're moving through life, not causing harm. We are, if we're not serving God, if we, if we haven't stepped into that belonging relationship with him, we inevitably end up belonging to someone or to something else. See, freedom in the kingdom, you can just go to that next slide. Freedom in the kingdom is freedom to serve. We aren't free from having any king or to be our own king, but we're free to serve the rightful king. And that's why Jesus set us free, right? Because even Israel, they messed up time and time again. And so Jesus, he came and said, uh, I, will I will be the perfect human, both God and man. I'll be the representative to fulfill God's purpose for Adam and his promise to Abraham so that we are now free to serve the rightful king, to see reality rightly, to see the beautiful light that we were once like blinded by darkness. You know what I mean? But now we step into this beautiful light and it's just too bright, too wonderful to not give our whole selves to. When we see Jesus as he truly is, I mean, when Peter sees him, in the Gospel of Matthew, at the Transfiguration, shining in full glory, he gets dizzy <laughs> and falls down and gets confused. When John sees Jesus in full glory, in full beauty, he falls down as if he was dead. Like when we see Jesus, but that is the image that we are being transformed into somehow. That is the image that we are called to reflect, behold, look upon as we are transformed into the very image of Christ. And it is the spirit that reminds us that we are chosen and royal and holy and special, that we belong to the Father and that he has plans and purposes for our lives, that paradoxically serving him actually leads to true freedom and away from slavery to sin and death.
Amen? Amen. So that's the image that the writers of the New Testament return to time and time again to help us understand the kind of freedom we have in the Spirit. And for the rest of our time today, uh, I just want to offer a few reminders and focus on one aspect of what we're free from and now what we're free to do in the Spirit as we serve this rightful King. And I hope to give you some scriptural truth this morning that you can fight with even beyond this gathering, uh, some things that can soak into your heart and even begin to shape and settle in your spirit so we can tell ourselves some better stories moving forward. And so the first thing that we need to know is that in the spirit, we are free from sin. In the spirit, we are free from sin. Um, the first time I ever went to the beach, uh, so I'm not from California. There's a lot of, you know, SoCal people here. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania, uh, Washington, Pennsylvania, small town. We had a creek in my backyard, Catfish Creek. Used to play there in the summer sometimes when it would overflow. But not, not used to the ocean, not used to the beach. But when I was 14 years old, I went with a family friend um, and his family on vacation to Outer Banks, North Carolina. Anybody ever been to Outer Banks? Yeah, oh, that's awesome, there you go. So you know, it's like not as good as San Diego, uh, but it was awesome, it was great for me. And uh, we go and he, there's this thing called the drop off, which I had never heard about before, right? There's this point where like the water that you can walk on just like, or the, the sand beneath the water just like drops way off and you can no longer stand. And my friend's like, let's go find the drop off. I'm like, that sounds like a great idea, right? So we're just bobbing around out there, water up to our nose, trying to stay alive. And while we're out there, Almost at the point where we have to swim, I felt something kind of just rub by my leg. I just found a gentle graze on my outer thigh. <laughs> and uh, what do you think I did? I had to look down, right? I needed to look down. Why? Because I needed to know what it was that I was dealing with. I needed to define what it was that touched me so that I could have an appropriate response. You guys know, if it was seaweed, no problem. Awesome, excellent, keep it moving, let's find the drop off. If it was a sea turtle, I'd be happy because I had never seen a sea turtle before. But if it was sharks, that's not good for me. <laughs> like that is a no bueno. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but it was sharks. It was literally two tiger sharks just like circling around my leg. And I have never swam that fast in my entire life. Like I, I swam so fast. I, can't, I don't have an analogy, but it was so good. I didn't stop running until I got out of the water and ran over the sand dune and then fell and collapsed. And my friend's dad came and ran down the beach and was like, what happened, what happened? And I was like, something touched me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like something, like I didn't go back in for the rest of the trip probably. Uh, so what's the point? The point is that we need to know what we're dealing with. And when we're talking about sin, it's no different. We need to know what sin is so that we can have the appropriate response to it. And so I just want to take a few moments and actually define sin. What is sin? Now, there's many ways to describe sin. Some are poetic, some are practical, some are confusing. Uh, but this is a concept that pervades the pages of Scripture. It's in all throughout the Bible. And I know that some people have heard, or maybe there's some teachers out there that teach that sin doesn't even exist. Uh, but that's just not what the Bible teaches. And so if, if you've been taught something like that, you can have a conversation, email me, Evan. We would love to kind of walk you through some of that stuff. Um, but this is a theme that is very prevalent in the scripture, even though it's not often appropriate to talk about in our cultural setting today. And one way that I like to think about sin, kind of one important aspect of sin or, or sort of a simple definition way to think about it is simply this sin Acts of sin are acts of disobedience to God's will, 
or, or what God wants that lead to separation from God, from one another, and ourselves, right? We're disobeying the heart of the Father, and we're doing things that don't lead to our benefit or the benefit of others or intimacy with God, but they actually lead from distance and separation between us and God and us and those we love and even within our own hearts and souls. To, to use Evan's language from last week, you can think of sin as like a denial of Jesus as Lord, right? Uh, these are actions or things that we do, desires we have that don't set Jesus up as the Lord over our life. They set something else up as the Lord over our life whether it's what we want or our own desires or uh, this person who we idolize in our life or, I mean, even maybe literal idols and other false gods. The Bible calls these acts of sin then acts which lead to death, which is very strong language. But that's because God is life. And one day there will be no reality outside of him as Christ fills all in all, literally expelling death and evil from existence. Right, that's what it means to be in Christ, it's in life. And, and there's this thing of acts of sin that lead to death. They're not compatible with our new nature. They're not compatible with ultimate reality and who God is. One scholar puts it like this. He said, there is a divine vision for how the world is and ought to be, but acts of sin twist and pervert reality. It's twists and pervert reality. And this can manifest in many different ways. Two that I think are most common we'll talk about now. And, and the first one is that sin often manifests as a pattern or habit of doing the things that I know to be wrong, even when I don't want to do it. It's a pattern or habit of doing things that I know that I know are wrong, even when I don't want to do those things. Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 6 as he describes humanity's slavery to sin. Notice that language of slavery again and the contrast of Christ. Uh, but there's this humanity's slavery to sin. We, we have this individual sense of belonging to sin, of being bound by it or trapped in it. So often sin is something we can't resist. Some of you in here, myself included, you know the feeling of deep bondage to addiction, or pornography, or that toxic relationship that you know is abusive and you need to get out of, but you just can't seem to tear yourself away. Or maybe it's something like lying, right? Like there's no reason for me to just lie right now, but I just told a lie and I don't know why, it just happened. Like no, they wouldn't have cared if I told them the truth, but I just, it just came out of me, this lie. Or maybe it's something like rage and anger that just stokes and stokes and, and comes out of you. Sometimes it's so subtle you hardly even know it's there. There's this little seed in your heart that you water every so often until this ugly flower bursts forth in the moment. I mean, think of an argument where you said something terrible to somebody else, maybe even somebody you love. I'm not the only bad person in the room, right? Like, we've all done this. Whether you meant what you said or not, that outburst, it's often like an eruption that you didn't plan on. It feels like it happened to you or through you in a way. Like, you did it, but it's you weren't really in control of it. Can anybody relate to that? Uh, I think I have time for a story, a way that this manifested in my life recently, and this is so, like, just don't judge me. You know what I mean? Amanda, you're gonna judge me. Don't judge me, okay? Okay, um, so this is the way this happened. So we moved into a new neighborhood. We moved here a year ago. And uh, I, our neighborhood, I would say, is like hood adjacent, right? So it's like a rougher neighborhood, but there's a lot of people buying houses and moving in, and um, it's just like a, a real mix of people. 
But on my street, cars just zoom by, zoom by, zoom by, like nonstop. Dudes do donuts in the little middle. And every time it would happen, I would kind of get this like irk. You know what I mean? I would get kind of angry because I have kids. I justify it in my mind, right? Like what if my kid goes out there uh, and, and they get hit or somebody else's kid gets hit? And so every time this would happen, I just began to let this thing fester inside of me, this little anger. I would notice it, but I wouldn't really deal with it. Um, and it would just bubble up and bubble up. And then one day, I'm backing up out of my driveway, and this guy is zooming by, and I hear somebody honking at me, and he's like speeding, speeding, trying to tell me like not to uh, back out, you know, like not to do it, because he's trying to come by. And in that moment, I flicked him off. <laughs> You're judging me. You're judging me. Okay, I flicked him off, right? And, uh, and it seems like this small, completely justifiable, innocent act. And of course, because of where I live, he pulled over and got out the car. And so then I was like, oh, here we go, you know what I mean? And, but, but I was immediately, I felt like regret. I wasn't like scared or anything like that, but it was like, I just dehumanized somebody. Like, I just, I'd been stoking this thing inside of me. You know what I mean? I've been giving, and that it just manifested on somebody who maybe he was wrong, but I'm dehumanizing somebody made in the image of God. And he walks up, and I got super Christian. I was like, bro, like, I repent. You know what I mean? <laughs> we, we ended up shaking hands. It was good. It was really, really good. You know? We're friends now. But, uh, <laughs> but it happens to all of us. That, that's that pattern. Does that make sense? That story illustrate the point? Okay. So there's things that we do that bubble up out of us because we stoke them, and it just sort of, we can't control it all the time. We're trapped by it. Sometimes it's way, way, way worse than that story that I just shared. But then there's this other pattern, right? Uh, so there's a pattern of doing the things that are wrong that I know are wrong, but then sometimes I do wrong things that I don't even know are wrong. Like there's times where I just don't even know that I'm doing something that breaks God's heart or that goes against his will or something he doesn't want. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said that we're so far gone, we're so distant from God in our own human thinking and hearts that we even call good evil and call evil good. Now, now, partially, this comes from not knowing God, from being part of cultures or families that have been long separated from God and his word, didn't grow up in church, never uh, had the spirit active in their lives. And, you know, think of cultures that have never heard the gospel. And so we often build our own ideologies and moralities, and sometimes they line up with God's reality, but oftentimes they don't. Yet it can also be from self-deception, right? We can justify and, and deceive ourselves to think, oh, this actually isn't bad. It's not that wrong. It's good. Or somebody else can deceive us, right? We can be self-deceived because somebody else is giving us false information. Now, I work a lot with youth. I do a lot of youth development at my other job. Um, so I'm with kids like all day. And I can tell you that there's a generation rising right now who has been given a green light on many things God defines as sinful, on acts that literally will lead to their death. And they don't even know that it's wrong. The people often who are giving them the green light, they know that it's wrong and are intentionally trying to change the way that kids think, but the kids themselves, they don't know that it's wrong. And so part of sharing the gospel today in my context, not just with kids, but with many in our culture, it looks like convincing folks that something like sin even exists in the first place, like especially sexual sin, right? I think often we think, uh, like back in the 1700s, or something, we could just get up on a bench outside and be like, repent, ye sinners, the Lord is good. That's how they talked, Jacob. That's how they talked. Okay, and repent, but it's not like that. People don't, they don't even know. They're like, what's a sinner? You know what I mean? Like, what does that even mean? 
We're often confronting people with new information and trusting that the Spirit will convict of truth those who don't know truth so that they might actually repent and receive forgiveness in the first place. So that's just two ways that sin manifests in our lives. But sin isn't only an act of the will or a desire to do wrong, right? All throughout human history and across cultures, people have attested that there there seems to be this system almost like a personal force that we can't escape. Something that acts with or through us, maybe even against us, but sin isn't limited to human agency or consent. It shapes us. It's like the water that we're swimming in, the air that we're breathing is polluted and it's shaped and and, and affected by sin. That's partially because the effects of sin too often outlast the actual act of sinning. Right? You can do a sin here and even repent and whatever, be forgiven, but there's consequences to the thing that travel all over in all kinds of different directions. And they have, you know, the duration of the effect lasts longer or shorter. But think about this. You can make one decision that runs a marriage, right? One decision that runs a marriage, but it'll be generations of adversity that echo out into that family. You know, like it's going to go in in for the children. They're going to have to overcome stuff. The spouse is going to have to overcome stuff. You're going to have to overcome stuff. Even if you're forgiven, you're going to have to struggle to believe that you're forgiven. Like nothing is irredeemable. Everything is redeemable by the blood of Jesus. But there is a fallout effect of sin. It, It takes nations decades to rebuild after war. Right. I mean, think about what's happening in Ukraine right now. It's going to take years and years for the cities, if to be ever back to what they were, if even possible to get that way, right? They're gonna have to do something new to rebuild after this war, let alone the psychological and social trauma that leads to more brokenness and perpetuity and anger and resentment and bitterness and my dad died and now I don't have a father and my mother died and now I don't, you know, it's, it's, there's a thing that happens and it just echoes out. And often outside of some sort of miraculous healing or restoration, it becomes the only reality that we know. See, this is the idea of originating sin, that in a sinful world, you can't escape sinning because you were formed by sinful systems and other sinners. Ultimately, it all began in the garden with the first humans, but all of us are guilty. We're shaped by this system. And on top of that, the Bible says that our own righteousness, uh, the things that we try to do to fix the problems of sin and undo the effects, there's this metaphor that our own actions towards that are actually like dirty rags. Uh, that the weight of sin is so heavy, that it's so perverse, that the world is so broken, we're completely unaware of how ineffectual our ability to change it on our own is. We just can't comprehend it. That's why Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers and principalities of evil. We need to be reminded of that as we're talking about sin and seeking freedom. It's not just our own actions. There's something out there trying to, trying to kill us, the Bible says. The, the enemy came to still kill and destroy. Like Evan said, God's will is not the only will that governs our world. But we have hope in Christ. And it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question remains... How exactly does the Spirit free us from sin? Right? If we know what sin is, how does the Spirit free us from sin? The Spirit cleanses and empowers us. That's what we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about. Just the cleansing 
arm of the spirit and the empowering arm of the spirit, to use that analogy. Let's read Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. This is like one of the most underrated Bible verses in all of Scripture. The author of Hebrews is here talking about how Jesus' blood ends the sacrificial system of lambs and goats that the Hebrews used throughout their history to atone for their sins, to try to clean themselves from their uh, sinful nature or to make themselves at one with God again. And the writer is saying, hey, those sacrifices, they were temporary, they worked for a season, but, but this blood is the only blood that can truly save you. The, the blood of Jesus is the only blood that can actually set us free. Uh, the blood of Jesus is the only blood that can make us right. We don't have to go back and do the same thing every year or every time. We, it's, there's, there's a once and done, right? On the cross, it is finished. And so he's talking about the power of the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus is the only truly perfect, sinless, spotless human and God in the flesh accomplishing what we could never accomplish on our own. He has the cheat code, so to speak. He is the true lamb, if you will, and he does this mysteriously through the Spirit. I mean, that's the crazy part. He does this through the Holy Spirit. See, the same Spirit who dwells in us today was with Jesus on the cross. The same Spirit who dwells with us today was with Jesus on the cross. Just let that sink in for a moment. The spirit who is in our hearts, the spirit who is present when we gather together, the spirit who speaks to us in the morning and sings us to sleep at night, that same spirit was with Jesus on the cross. And that means that he is intimately acquainted with all the suffering Jesus endured as a result of sin. Every sorrow, every wound, each lash, the betrayals. See, the spirit knows we often think of salvation, of being set free in terms of Jesus' sacrifice to forgive and restore sinners, right? To take away our guilt for what we did to God and to other people. And that's 100% the gospel, 100% true. Jesus' blood does that. But Jesus also died so that the sinned against, so the victims of sin, can be healed from the ways we've been broken. See, Jesus' blood doesn't just cleanse us from the sins we've committed, it also heals our woundedness from the fallout and absurdity of living in a world so often destroyed by sin. And often this destruction is so personal and so intimate, it's shameful to even mention, right? How close the perverseness of sin has impacted our lives. Yet since Jesus did this through the Spirit, there is no secret shame or sin beyond him. There's no special suffering that isolates us from the Spirit. The way that we feel our sadness and pain often alienates us from others who simply cannot understand what we've done or what we've been through. The Spirit knows. But the good news of the gospel is that this is the same spirit through whom Jesus offered himself for our sin, is the same spirit God used to raise him from the dead. 
I'm gonna say that one more time, and I really am not a fan of hype, but this is very, very important. The same spirit through whom Jesus offered himself for our sin is the same spirit that God used to raise Christ from the dead. See, not only does the spirit know the crushing weight and brutal cost of sin, but also the irrevocable and ultimate victory won through Christ's resurrection, the spirit knows the complete neutering, declawing, and defeat of sin, death, and the devil. And so the eternal truth that the father shouted once, the spirit shouts still, in Christ we are God's beloved children with whom he is well pleased. And the spirit is committed to making that reality our reality. The spirit is committed to making that reality our reality by guiding, correcting, forgiving, healing, restoring, cleansing, and empowering, loving, and reminding us of the truth of our new identities in Christ over the course of a life. Thanks to the victory our Savior won to set us free. See, the Spirit knows that evil lost and loses. You guys heard this before. We know the end of the story, right? We've read the book of Revelation. And the spirit knows that evil lost and loses and reminds us of that truth. And so the spirit assures us that even in our darkest day, even when this, the shame and the sin and the weight feels overbearing, even when we feel literally zero worth, that we are loved, yeah. that we are worthy, that we are chosen and called, that we are a special possession, that we belong to the only one who could ever truly satisfy and that him who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That one day, as J.R.R. Tolkien famously put it, every sad thing will become untrue. And so we sing in the spirit, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? See, for those who are in Christ Jesus, sin no longer has the final word on your identity, destiny, or conscience. You have been set free to become the beloved child of the Father who has made, is making, and will make you clean by the blood of the Lamb. Shame, accusation, and fear must die today because they have no place in your eternity. And if this is you, if this is speaking to your heart, if this is something that you struggle with, if you feel like you're in a season of like shame or heavy sin or persistent sin, the invitation today is simply to respond in faith to the good news of the gospel, to participate in the cleansing, healing freedom God delights and wants to work in your life by opening yourself up to the spirit and saying, uh, God, here I am. <laughs> right? That might be all you can say. Like, I, I want to believe this, what he's talking about, help my unbelief. That might be what it looks like for you this morning. Maybe the Spirit's already healing things in your heart that you didn't even know were broken, like pouring love out like a salve on the tender, wounded places. I mean, God can do things in a moment that like we couldn't do in a lifetime with our best therapy and money and medicine. Like there's healing, emotional healing even, that could happen in your heart, in your soul, in a moment that God does that we can never accomplish on our own. And maybe this morning, that's what God's gonna do for you. That's what we've been praying for. That's what we long to see happen. And God also works over the course of a life through therapy and medicine and healing and spiritual, spiritual discernment and pastoral counseling. And so maybe today for you, what freedom looks like, uh, you're going to decide, hey, I'm going to take that step and get therapy. I'm going to talk to the pastors and confess this thing. I need spiritual discernment and guidance in my life. Or maybe you don't know where to start and you just need prayer. 
we, we'd love to pray for you in a few moments. We're actually going to spend most of uh, uh, the worship time just praying and inviting people to pray. So I want you to hold on to that and really like be brave and step forth today into that. But before we do, I just want to touch on this other side of the cleansing power of the Spirit, and that's empowerment. That's how the Spirit actually empowers us to overcome sin. See, Jesus delights in our healing and all the personal benefits that healing entails. And I firmly believe that like, even if you were to never like say plant a church or become a, you know, share the gospel or do some big thing for God, God wants to see you healed because he loves you. Like, I just want to see my daughter is, she's not feeling well and I want her to get better because I love her and I don't want to see her sick, right? And so like, God would heal you just because he loves you. And also, our healing isn't only for us. He doesn't save us just so that we can do whatever we want, right? Remember that idea of freedom, so that we can just live in comfort and protection and security now because we're whole and we never have to touch darkness again. No, he frees us and heals us so that we can participate in his mission of setting captives free of others who are trapped in sin and stuck in the mire of that thing that holds them down. Let's look back at, this, at, at Hebrews, right? He says, how much more will the, the blood of Christ through the Spirit cleanse you from acts that lead to death so that, I don't think it was capitalized in the Greek, but I capitalized it here, so that we may serve the living God, right? You're saved from these acts that lead to death. Your conscience is clean and made pure. You're undefiled and worthy and beautiful. You're a special possession. You don't have to do those things anymore so that you may serve the living God. And most importantly, it is the spirit that empowers us to do this, to imitate Jesus in laying our lives and rights down so that we may serve others for their benefit, even when it costs us something. In other words, the kingdom is not a consumer culture. It's a family where everyone contributes, right? It's not just something where we come to receive and receive and take and take. It's a family where when we're restored, everybody gets to contribute to what God's doing in the world. It's not just a state of being, but a call to action. And now don't get me wrong, there's seasons where you simply need healing, okay? Uh, some of you guys might come here and you might have like finally found a place in a community of rest. And you've been really burnt out from ministry or from other churches or from things people have done to you in the past. And you're in that season of just being healed and restored and receiving and resting. And that is beautiful and we bless that and that is completely necessary but also the natural effect of being set free, right? What we see happen in scripture time and time again when someone is healed is that this new sort of thing kind of bubbles up that they can't control. Uh, this obedient evangelistic outpouring of what God has done in your life that you just have to share and tell other people. The psalmist says that my cup overflows, right? It's this image not of being filled up to be poured out, filled up to be poured out, but just being under the spout and just overflowing and leaking on every single thing, every person around me. You ever been around somebody who like, they might be in a negative space and you're leaking that energy out on people? I mean, I've been that, we've a lot of, if, if you haven't, it's you, that's what they always say, right? No, uh, that's a lot of us, I've experienced that, most of us have. But in the kingdom now, when we're, when we're like, we're in the intimacy with the Father, 
We're called to overflow and to leak out the goodness and the glory and the beauty and the love and the life that he is just continually pouring out onto us, on the others around us. Jesus puts it like this. He says that the spirit that is inside of us is like rivers of living water flowing out of the hearts of believers. It just bubbles up like a geyser to all around. The woman at the well, whom Aaliyah preached on a couple weeks ago, she had to go and tell everybody what Jesus did for her, right? I mean, that was the story. He met her in the moment of her isolation, her brokenness and aloneness and pain and suffering. And Jesus, once she encounters the love of the Father, once she sees him the way that he ought to be seen, she goes and tells every single person she knows about who he is and what he's done for her. That's what's possible. That's what we're called to. That's what naturally happens as we spend that time being transformed into his image through beholding the beauty of his face. And if it sounds abstract, I want to make it a little bit more concrete. Uh, If I've been set free from sin, what do I do? What does serving the living God actually look like? Well, Paul answers the question directly. Uh, Let's look at Romans 6, 17 through 18. Paul's writing on this theme that we've been talking about, and he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Right? Not my own king, not no king. I serve the rightful king. And so freedom in the spirit means that we're free from sin in order to serve righteousness. And it manifests as obedience from your heart. Obeying the teachings of Jesus, following Jesus, doing what he told us and called us to do from our hearts. In other words, which is like, you know, super a lot of things. It's like the whole Bible, basically. But here's how I like to think about it. I am obligated to do right from duty. If I had an old master, sin, I was a slave to that, but now I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm obligated to do whatever it is that he tells me to do, but I am empowered to do right by love. See, I'm called to do what he said to do because he said to do it, and he's God. But I delight to do it. I'm empowered to do it. I'm blessed and free to do it because of love. See, when our sin or the sin done to us no longer defines us, our very desires begin to change as we obey the pattern of Jesus' teaching, empowered by his spirit dwelling with and in us. When my sin or the sin done to me no longer defines me, I become free to help others step into this glorious freedom as well. And I just want to note that that doesn't mean you're going to live some perfect, spotless, sinless life after you get saved, right? Um, We're not called to live a perfect life. We're empowered to live a faithful life. All the apostles struggled with sin. They made mistakes. But the thing that set them apart is that they clung to Jesus. Uh, They they never let go of his unchanging hand, right? Because they believed, they trusted, they threw themselves back on the promise that he is faithful even when we are faithless for he cannot deny himself. That he loves us and no one will snatch us out of the hand. That he calls us beloved and that's who we are. That he gets to determine our identity and not that person who says that hard thing or that person who did that thing to us before or the lies that the enemy is telling me. They just kept trusting and turning and returning to that over and over again over the course of a life because it's, his power is made perfect in our weakness. And as Jason taught a few weeks ago, uh, we have an advocate, right? The Holy Spirit also functions as our advocate. And so we are invited into this pattern of of confession and repentance. And it's crucial for living this out over the course of our lives. 
And as a church, Park Hill, we are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together over the course of our lives. Uh, we want to finish the race well. We want to see you follow Jesus 50 years from now. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so one of the ways that we do that, aside from learning how to obey Jesus over the course of our lives in community, is, is by reminding each other through prayer, through worship, through the word of what we've been set free from and what we've been set free to do in the spirit along the way.